0: But now with a very brief preamble, and I actually do mean brief, Um, we'll go to the session in just a couple of minutes. Uh, We're now going to be spending the rest of this morning, tomorrow morning, in this genre, or this matrix of practices called shamatha, which are about developing and (laughs) defining attention skills. Um, But these points are crucial, and if you wish to engage in these practices, Mm. if you bear them in mind and practice them, they'll save you a lot of time. And that is three qualities to be cultivated in sequence. And very often in meditation, even in Buddhist meditation, let alone other kinds, very, very often, I know for myself, in the first 20 years of my training, I don't recall anybody ever mentioning the first of these three, and that's relaxation. That is, normally when people concentrate, they really focus their attention. It almost always entails contraction, even sometimes showing the furrowing of the brow. I'm really concentrating now. And so the first point, and you can do that, but it's not sustainable. And the longer you maintain a high level of attention, concentration and so forth, the more drained you'll become. So it's not sustainable. And sustainability is one of the most important words in the English language right now, not only for the external but for the internal. Sustainable well-being only in eudaimonia, not in eudonia. So the first emphasis will be on relaxation. Then out of relaxation, then we shift the emphasis over to an inner stillness, a calm, a continuity, coherence, all of those bundled under one word, we can say stability. And then on the basis of that, then the acuity, the sharpness, vividness, high resolution, brightness of attention. So that sequence there can save you a lot of time, and it's sustainability all the way through. The deeper the relaxation, the more sustainable is the stability and coherence of attention, and the stronger the stability and coherence, the brighter and more acute, vivid attention can become. So, we will be focusing on both of these mornings, today and tomorrow, on variations on a theme of mindfulness of breathing. We'll go in now momentarily. Um, but I'd like, if you'd like to remember something as kind of pith instructions, I'll invite you in the sessions we'll do this morning and then the first one tomorrow morning to be taking on different types of balancing acts. Different types of balancing acts. And I've done them a lot, I've taught them a lot, I found them very, very helpful. Nothing new from my side, just the articulation may be a little bit new. And that is our first emphasis, after we've settled body, speech and mind, and we'll we'll do that much faster this time, and with fewer words, (coughs) because it's not that complicated, we'll go into a practice that is especially helpful for bringing about a greater and deepening and deepening sense of ease, relaxation, comfort, looseness in body and mind. A variation on the theme of mindfulness of breathing. And the balance will be, This is the pith instruction. Balance will be to cultivate deeper and deeper sense of relaxation without losing the level of clarity that you have right now. Now In other words, we're not going to try to develop more clarity at the beginning. But you're all clear enough, I can see by gazing at you, you're awake, you're attentive, that's enough. You can develop much, much higher levels of clarity and vividness, but not yet. And so the first balance will be to, to cultivate deeper and deeper sense of relaxation without losing the clarity right now. It's enough, right? Then in the same session, this is going to be a very high-compact practice we're about to do for 24 minutes, and then during more or less the latter half of the last 10 minutes or so of the session, then we'll shift technique, They're, they're close, but they're not the same, we'll shift technique to a second variation on the theme, just like music, variation on the theme, in which we'll shift the emphasis, first, relaxation, without losing clarity, And the second balancing act will be to cultivate greater stability, continuity, stillness, composure, unification of attention, without losing the underlying sense of ease and relaxation. So this is going to be an action-packed 24 minutes. (laughs) But you wouldn't know it from outside. So please find a comfortable position. And actually, there is a lot of floor space here, a good deal over on the left and right and down here. So if any of you brought yoga mats, and you'll just be more comfortable in the Shavasana or corpse position, lying in the supine position. In any session, you're always welcome to do that. Some people just can't be very comfortable if they're sitting upright, in which case I encourage you, make use of this brilliant asana called the Shavasana, corpse position. Sitting is fine, cross-legged, on a chair, your chairs are good, all of that is fine. will be a 24-minute session. I didn't make up that duration. It goes back about a thousand years. And the idea, the, the reason for that duration, nothing magical about it, but the idea is it's long enough to really get into the flow of the practice and not so long that you just start getting fidgety and restless and you know, agitated. So we'll see. With the sound of the chime and invite you to relax in body and mind as you let the locus of your awareness descend to the ground Like a fragrance filling a room, let your awareness fill the entire somatic space. There's no need to visualize the body or think about it. Be utterly present about this entire tactile field. Loosening, relaxing, wherever you feel there is constriction or tension, setting your body at ease. Be still and vigilant. Then rise to the challenge of breathing egolessly, relinquishing all control, all preference, simply being present with body breathing, releasing the breath fully with every exhalation, relaxing the body, releasing thoughts, simply allowing the breath to flow in gently, without pulling it, Then, as an act of will, setting your mind at ease is not to say that your concerns, your plans, hopes, and fears are unimportant. Not saying that at all. Mm-hmm. But just now, take a miniature Sabbath, just a time to release all of that. And come utterly to rest, carefree, loose, and relaxed intent to rest in the immediacy of the present moment without conceptual elaborations, without cloaking your awareness in words or The referent of the term clear, bright, vivid. As an intrinsic quality of your own awareness, it is naturally luminous. It illuminates all appearances, all experiences. The illuminator of all, by nature bright and clear, and rests utterly. Continue to rest awareness right where it is. Awareness resting in its own place, holding its own ground, not being drawn away by thoughts and memories. Content to stay home. And like a lighthouse that remains stationary on its rocky knoll, but cast its light out of the great sea. Rest your awareness right where it is, like the lighthouse. And cast the light of your awareness over the entire somatic field. Let your awareness illuminate, make manifest. The sensations arising throughout the entire tactile field. Rest in the stillness of your awareness as you attend to the comings and goings, the movements of these sensations throughout. The this diversity, this range of tactile sensations arising throughout this field, I invite you now to selectively focus on those sensations throughout the body, those fluctuations, those ripples in the field of his somatic field that correspond to the in and out flow of the breath. In other words, experience your whole body breathing by way of the bare tactile sensations Corresponding to this rhythm. And with every exhalation, see if you can continue to melt, to loosen up, to relax, in body and mind every exhalation, release any tightness in the body of light, relaxing more and more deeply with every exhalation, but without losing the clarity with which you began, not becoming drowsy or spaced out, but vividly attentive, and yet more and more deeply relaxed. Here's your challenge. And if you'd like to introduce a gentle oscillation to help more and more finely balance and tune your attention. As the breath gently, effortlessly flows in, you experience these sensations throughout the body correlated with this inhalation. And as the breath flows in, arouse focus, attending closely These sensations around the body correlated with the inhalation. Really focus. And with every exhalation, as you simply release the breath all the way through to the end, relax more and more deeply with each out. You arouse your attention during inhalation. You ward off the tendency to space out, to fall into that di- laxity or dullness. You maintain that clarity as you breathe in. But with every exhalation, relax deeply, release, and there, deepen, thereby deepen the sense of relaxation and ease. Arouse and relax. shift to a second a variation on the theme. And this will, this method is specifically helpful for enhancing the stability, the continuity, the coherence, the inner calm. And the balance, of course, is to increase stability without sacrificing the sense of ease and relaxation. In this method we somewhat narrow the focus of our attention. Directed down, downwards, if you feel you're up in your head. We focus now on the rise and fall of the abdomen with each in and out breath. We're not visualizing the belly, we're not thinking about it. But we are focusing single pointedly on the tactile sensations as the belly expands with each inhalation and contracts. oscillation again. As you breathe in, really focusing clearly. Concentrating, single-pointedly. And the sensations of the belly expands. And then as you breathe out, again relax deeply. But while maintaining the continuity, thereby enhancing stability, the continuity of attention, attending to the whole course of inhalation, the whole course of exhalation, a continuous stream of sensations, the rise and fall of the abdomen, and corresponding to that, a continuous stream of mindfulness of these sensations. and refine our attention skills, we need to utilize and refine two faculties of the mind. The first of these is mindfulness. But Mindfulness, as defined in Buddhism, is that faculty of mind by which we are able to bear in mind whatever we're attending to, without distraction and without forgetfulness. So here we are bearing in mind as continuously as we can Sensations of the rise and fall of the abdomen, maintaining a con- continuous flow of deliberate attention, without becoming carried away by thoughts or without becoming bored and dull. <laughs> Mindfulness of. We couple with this faculty of mindfulness, another faculty that I'll translate as introspection, our ability in this case to monitor the flow of mindfulness and to recognize quickly when our attention is strayed and carried away by some, discer- by some distracting thought or other stimulus. We we'll call that excitation. We've wandered away or been carried away. Or we may also just fall into boredom and dullness. It is the function of introspection, this quality control, to recognize when we deviate from this continuous flow of mindfulness that is steady and clear. Monitor the. Flow When you retrospectively note that your attention has wandered, probably caught up in some rumination, without being judgmental, without scolding yourself, that your first response, when you introspectively note that your attention has strayed, be to relax, loosen up, release whatever captivated your attention. Into the present moment, focusing once again on the sensations of the breath. Relax, release and return again and again, like trimming the sails of your Retrospectively, when you notice that the clarity is diminished, maybe boredom, maybe spaced out, a bit dull, easy to do when you're not receiving stimulation and arousal, but when you see clarity is diminished, then refresh your interest in the practice. Start all over again. Reboot. Refresh your interest. Restore the flow of mindfulness. That flow as continuously as you can. Refresh, restore, and retain. In this way, you balance the flow of mindfulness, avoiding the extremes of excitation and laxity. Let's continue practicing now inside. When we engage in any type of meditative practice, I think it's helpful to have criteria for being able to evaluate whether we're doing it correctly or not, and whether it's helpful. It shouldn't be a mystery. It shouldn't be just based on somebody else's authority. And happily for this whole range of practices of shamatha, we will be exploring four variations (coughs) on one theme of mindfulness of breathing. The criteria are very straightforward, transparent. So you will know, if, not, if you don't know within two days, and I think you will, but certainly within a week, if you continue practicing, I think a week is enough to tell, is this practice helpful to you or not? And then specifically, in what ways? And in these ways, both on the cushion, but ever in way far more importantly, those many hours when you're not on the cushion, and that's probably the vast majority of the day, <coughs> Overall, especially on the cushion, but then even more especially when off the cushion, do you experience a greater sense of ease, of relaxation, of your, in your body and in your mind? <coughs> are you more present, more still? Is there this kind of inner stillness there, a poise? And is there clarity? And in that sequence, so you'd be looking, first of all, like as in mindfulness-based stress reduction, the first criterion is, are you redu- reducing your stress? Which should mean greater sense of ease and relaxation. It's good, good place to start. But then on top of that, then, finding that inner presence, that inner composure, that inner stillness, even when things around you are very, very active. Of course, most of you, including myself, are living quite active way of life. I'm often in airports and there's a lot of hurly-burly walking here. There were young people, very enthusiastically speaking, at the top of their voices. And, you know, it's a lot of action, a lot of noise out there. That's okay. That's okay. But my mind doesn't have to be noisy because my environment's noisy. If the environment is agitated or maybe very <coughs> toxic and turbulent, my mind doesn't have to be toxic, to- turbulent or toxic. So having that sense of ease and the inner stillness on the basis of that, that stillness, that composure, that attentiveness, and then the icing on the cake, so to speak, is the clarity. So you see in that sequence, first of all, a deepening sense of ease, and then that inner composure, stillness, and then vividness. Those are the criteria that your practice is working well. <coughs> So we see a couple of sources here. I'm not going to read them, but these are two of the greatest masters, one from the Theravada Buddhist tradition on page two, right at the top, Buddha Gosa. Uh, you can read it, so I won't. And Asanga Sangha was a contemporary of his for the Mahayana tradition. So these are two of the great patriarchs of Theravada and Mayana Buddhism. And both of them are reflecting or expressing the intent of the Buddha and for those people who are very, uh, how do you say, prone to ruminative, having a ruminative temperament for a lot of chit-chat, mind-wandering, and so forth, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the exhalation, inhalation of the breath, is the ticket. This is the prescribed meditation, practice. And it's gentle. It really is gentle. And I don't think I've fully fathomed why it is the case. I've been practicing now 50 years, I've gotten some benefit. But it is gentle. And I practice other types. I've done a lot of different type of meditation. Fifty years gives you a lot of time to play the field. I've engaged in other kind of practices where uh, I feel more tense or kind of like bound up a little bit, a bit edgy. Sometimes practice a lot and feel a little bit grumpy, irritable, on edge as a result. I thought, hmm, don't think I want to cultivate that. And so this is the horse whisperer approach. There There are tougher ways to discipline the mind. Some of them can be very good for other people. I'm one of those ruminative types. And so, then, mindfulness breathing is one of the practices I find very helpful. And the next metaphor here, in the, under the heading of D, I just love it, I find it so immensely rich. And it's simple, and this is from the words of the Buddha himself, I want to read it, unpack it, I think it's immensely rich, and it's not just characterizing a particular meditative practice, he's talking about human nature and the natural nature of the mind, in a very deep way. So let's see what he says. He gives the metaphor, I've lived about five years in India, so I know exactly what he's talking about. In the last month of the hot season, well, the hot season ends when the monsoon hits. The monsoon hits traditionally but no oh, who knows, what now with global climate change, mid-June, just mid-June every year. But you get to early, late, mid-May, late May, early June, and a place like Delhi, it's just a stinker. It's hot, it's, it's really heavy and that's with all the pollution we have nowadays, but even at the time of the Buddha, just before the monsoon hits, is really hot, it's sultry, and he says, when a mass of dust and dirt has swirled up, that's before the Industrial Revolution. That's the plains of Punjab, you know, the dust and all of that. So the air quality is terrible, even way back in rural India, when the population was maybe 5% what it is now. So the, imagine this, he's inviting us to, to, to visualize. It's a hot, sultry, heavy day, air quality is terrible, it's oppressive, it's oppressive to look at the sky, oppressive to breathe and then suddenly a rain cloud appears and just you get this downpour just suddenly a downpour and the monsoon hasn't hit yet so this is out of season and with that downpour, this great rain cloud out of season then it disperses it, that is all the contamination the dust and dirt in the air, it dispels it, quells it on the spot so easy to imagine isn't it, that it's just so dense and murky and contaminated, and then the rain just comes whooshing down in a matter of just seconds. The air quality is now fresh, and it's crystal, and the the muck has all been flushed down to the ground, and wow, what a relief, what a relief. I've been praying for this for Sydney and New South Wales, that they can just have lots of rain out of season, too, because nothing else in the near future is going to quell those fires. I hope just nature kicks in, so that's my prayer. But he's giving an analogy there, and that's it. That's the analogy. So what's he he going to relate to this? This rain cloud, this rain that disperses and quells on the spot, all the grime, the dust of dirt in the air. So what's the analogy? There's the analogy. What does it refer to? Concentration by mindfulness of breathing. It's called anabandasati samadhi. Concentration doesn't quite get it. Concentration means, in English, I think, of now concentrate. Okay, I'll concentrate and a narrowing of focus, probably tightening, and it takes a lot of effort. Okay, I'm concentrating on what I need to do. That's not the connotation of samadhi. It's not that. It's not a contraction, but rather a unification. That you can be attending to all sentient beings. I think maybe Eva will be guiding you in practices attending to everyone around you. There's no contraction there. It's attending to all the creatures around you, human and non-human alike, and single-pointedly, but the point is all sentient beings, Attending to them with a mind that is unified, that is wholly engaged, fully present with—that's samadhi. That's samadhi. And sometimes you may focus on just a little bindu of light, a little orb of light. Again, well, that's real concentration. That's samadhi too. But maybe it's not a bindu of light. Maybe it's all sentient beings. Maybe it's space. Maybe it's awareness itself. But it means not multitasking, not fragmented, not not carried away, but totally present. So that total presence of mind, or unification of mind, that is cultivated by way of mindfulness of breathing, that's what he says, with concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated. So this is not a quick fix. We're doing something immensely meaningful and deep and profoundly transformative. So this is not like taking some pharmaceutical drug and you're expecting the result in 15 minutes. This is something to develop and cultivate, not to pursue. And so when you are developing and cultivating, this concert, this samadhi by way of mindfulness of breathing, then what can you anticipate? He's going to... This is a spoiler alert. And that is when you're practicing, what can you anticipate? What's likely to come out of this? Because none of us are going to do this practice for no reason at all because we just don't know anything else to do. We have all kinds of other things to do. Some of them, in the short term, will be much more productive. So why are we not being productive for a while? And just sitting here mindfully attending to our breath we have better have a good reason, because other people would say, "Don't just sit there; do something." That's what I was told when I was a kid. Do something. Good old Protestant ethic. <laughs> and so, but if you do develop and cultivate, you see the value. You start immersing yourself in the practice. You develop it, cultivate it. Then what can you anticipate? What's this for? What are the benefits you can anticipate? And he said, and he has three things here, and these are packed with meaning. They're simple words. What is the quality of your awareness, quality of body and mind, when you develop and cultivate this type of mindfulness? It is peaceful. That's predictable. Because you're not getting caught up in rumination and hope and fear and emotions and anxieties. You're calming the mind, calming the breath, calming the body. And the experience, the first one that says, yes, you're right on the right track. It's like traveling from here to Seattle and saying, oh, yes, mm. Reading." You're on the right track. <laughs> going to, you didn't say Las Vegas, no? Reading, good, you're heading towards Seattle. You're, you're on the right track if you experience a sense of serenity, of tranquility, of peacefulness, peace of mind, but also this kind of balance in the body. And that's the first indicator. You're on the right track. You're on the right track. But that doesn't stop there. That one was predictable. But the next two, I think, can come as surprises, which I'm going to take away from you right now. <laughs> Spoiler alert. He gives a simple adjective, which obviously is open to interpretation, but the word is sublime. It's a strong word. A strong word in Pali, and Sanskrit, in Tibetan, and so forth. It's a strong word, but he, he means everything he said. You're doing something so simple. It's simply doing the practice we just did. Those are two classic techniques. And you're simply attending to the, the inflow and the outflow, outflow of the mind in that way, of the breath, in that way. And then something sublime arises. Sat, sat, sublime, as in Satsukha, sublime well-being. And so what I'm about to say is an interpretation, but I'm actually very confident that it's on the right track. Sublime can be interpreted anyway. In any way. But I believe what he means is when he says sublime, he's referring to a sense that's more than just peaceful, but a sense of well-being. Well-being as opposed to feeling ill. Do you feel well or do you feel ill? A sense of well-being especially in the mind, but again also on the energetic level, the nervous system, how your body feels, a sense of wellness in the body because of the balance. You may be injured, you may have problems of the body, challenges of the body, but in the midst of them, feeling a sense of wellness and then, especially in the mind, this is after all above all the mind training, a sense of wellness that is a symptom, a sense of well-being that is a symptom of your mind coming to a finer and finer state of balance. The point that I, I quite clearly remember Tsongkhapa, a great 15th century Tibetan master, saying it struck me so profoundly true, I probably read it 40, 45 years ago. And that is, insofar as your mind is under the domination of mental afflictions, delusion, craven hostility, pride, arrogance, jealousy, but the mind is afflicted. Insofar as your mind is afflicted, dominated by, afflicted by these toxins of the mind. Then when you're simply resting with no stimulation, nothing to amuse you, entertain you, get your mind off, just just sitting there on your chair, you know, for fifteen minutes or what have you, when you're sitting there with no stimulation at all coming from outside, but the stimulations all come from the inside, and your mind is strongly dominated by such afflictions, you'll experience unhappiness. The, the stronger they are, the more unhappy you'll be, with no help from outside at all. This is why I say with sympathy, and no sarcasm or condescension, why did that one guy that I mentioned last night hit the elect- the socket 180 times in 15 minutes? Because that was more pleasant than what his mind was dishing up. It got his mind off. That, well, that got my mind off, that got my mind off. It can be unbearable to be sitting in a room by yourself with no stimulation. It's called solitary confinement. It's severe punishment in prison. And most people get to prison not because they had such wholesome minds. Mm-hmm. But probably strong mental afflictions, manifesting behavior, we have to incarcerate them to protect the rest of society from them. But then they are there, right with that which got them into the trouble in the first place. And it's torture. It's torture. It's self-inflicted. Whereas, of course, the contrary is true, and that's what this practice is about. The more the, the turbulence of mental afflictions, of ego, of anger, resentment, read etc etc the more the turbulence of the mind of these afflictions is calm and the mind becomes balanced the symptom of a balanced mind when you're not entertaining it's st- arousing it stimulating it, you're just sitting there quietly is a sense of well-being and that's sustainable it's not some magic that comes out of a very clever or sophisticated technique cuz there's just nothing clever or sophisticated about attending the breath it's not coming from the technique, any more than if you go to a therapist and get very wise counseling, that the benefit you re- receive is coming from the therapist. The therapist hel- is helping you enable your mind to heal, and that can be priceless. A very wise and compassionate therapist can offer you just a, a fabulous service. And that which heals, of course, is your own mind. And that which is heals here is not really the technique but it's allowing the mind to balance and sort itself out. And the experience that yogi, this is one person, but one person followed by 100 generations of practitioners within the Buddhist tradition, finding, yeah, he was right. I am sitting there, and it's just such a sense of well-being arose that I find when the session comes to an end, okay, I have other things to do, but when I have a moment, I want to come back. You prefer to come back. It's not stimulating not hedonic, it's eudaimonic. And eudaimonic is sustainable. But he's not, he's not finished yet. He goes, it's this kind of crescendo here, it's peaceful. It's sublime, it's an ambrosial dwelling. That's really over the top. An ambrosial dwelling. I've never been in one, but I'd like to. I don't know what umbrella may I don't know, it sounds really good, I'd like to jump in and, and swim there. But he speak, now he's using really extraordinary terminology. And, and with the background that I have, I think I know what he's referring to. It's a metaphor, of course, but what's he referring to? And I know what he's referring to. He's referring to bliss. He's referring to, referring to bliss. It is bliss. I mean, we experience bliss from many things, beauty of nature, beauty of music, and so on. We know about bliss. But this is bliss with no blissful stimulation. There is nothing, nothing pleasant happening to you. It's just breathing in and breathing out. But bliss is arising. It's one of the most important discoveries made about the mind, I think, by anyone ever, ever, and it's not been made yet in mainstream academia. Have you seen the article in Psychology Today that said, you have the capacity of bliss and here you have to open it up? I, have you seen that article? Not yet, but it's coming. It's coming. There's more and more integration between modern scientific psychology, psychoanalysis and so forth, and the depth of this tradition. It's coming. One of these days. I'll be saying, you might not believe this but everything you need for bliss, which you yearn for. Who doesn't want bliss, joy, ecstasy, delight? Who doesn't want that? But we always think we have to go out for it, as if we have no resources at all. And finding, just by refining and balancing, not only peacefulness and not only a sense of well-being, but bona fide bliss arises, blissfully breathing in and blissfully breathing out, who would have thought, then you can attend to something so bland, so neutral, as sensations of breathing in and out, and bliss is arising, then you know that's a keeper. As you know, you didn't get it from me or you didn't get it from the technique. The technique just cleared away the clutter. And this was your birthright. You were born to be blissful. But then we covered up with all the rubbish <laughs> of our minds. This is practice, this is just house cleaning. That's all this is, is house cleaning. There's no magic in the broom. I have no magic. I have, nothing, I have nothing to give you except for I just pass on the words, and then you find benefit or not, but only because you're practicing. But it's blissful, and it's true. I've listened now to thousands of reports of people reporting on the meditator practice. And time and again, I was meditating long, sometimes mindfulness breathing, another method, and then just bliss came on. I didn't know where it came from, but whoa! Sometimes it's very somatic, I've heard this repeatedly. Physical bliss came up, or it's mental bliss, it's both. That's important. So often, almost inevitably in our modern world, we're looking outside for that which would really make us happy. But it's still not finished, there's still more, and this final one may be finally the most significant. That through this simple practice, developing that coherence of your awareness by mindfulness of breathing, this dispels, disperses and quells on the spot unwholesome states whenever they arise. Unwholesome states are simply those impulses in the mind that undermine our sense of well-being, that made the mind edgy, imbalanced, agitated, distraught, miserable, fearful, angry, and so forth. And so these impulses are not going to go away. There's no magic bullet here, there's no silver bullet to make all your problems go away. But what really strikes me very powerfully here is through this simple practice, when developed and cultivated, don't expect it to be an overnight fix, that it's bolstering your psychological immune system in ways that are utterly tangible, practical, and observable. And I've chose my words very carefully, but we all know that when your immune system, doctors know, nurses know, healthcare providers know, that when, you're, when you've slept well, you're well-nourished, well-exercised, You're taking supplements that might even more augment your immune system. So you're really vibrantly healthy, right? And you encounter somebody who has a flu, and they inadvertently just suddenly sneeze right in your face. Not everybody gets the flu. Some people do, and some people don't. Same flu, same virus, it just hits you right in the face. And yet some people, when encountering contagious disease, get it, and some people don't. It has everything to do with the immune system. When you encounter something, I read, I check, I think it's part of my responsibility as being a 21st century person, I'm checking New York Times, CNN, The Guardian, sometimes other media, just what do other people think is taking place in the world? Most of it's bad. And so I see what's going on in the world, I get kind of the overview, and many of the reports are on belligerence and stupidity and greed and hatred and violence, a lot, right? That comes up a lot. Or we're talking with somebody and somebody else is expressing mental affliction. Contempt comes up an awful lot in American politics right now. I'm not going to point my fingers to the left or the right, because there's plenty on both sides. You people are despicable. Yeah, I, exactly right, you people are despicable. You people, you people, you're not like us, you people. I can't even fathom. you, you're so over the top, I can't even imagine how you can get into the state you are. You're unbelievable. Yeah, right. <laughs> mm i I've. I've been through the Nixon era and all of that, but a lot of geezers like me. Ever seen anything like this? Even the Nixon era. Even, even Vietnam. And nothing like this. And so, man, there's a bounty of contempt going around, and contempt for contemptible behavior, which in a way is appropriate, but then turning that to people, not so appropriate. So these are contagious. Stupidities can be contagious. Really contagious. And greed is contagious. These are the, the most conti- contagious afflictions that we have. But can we, in the midst of this world, without simply withdrawing into a cocoon, I won't check the Internet anymore, I'm going to close my eyes, I'm going to block that out, I don't want to know anymore, because it disturbs my mind. I sympathize with that. But that's not going to be a solution. Can we attend to face-to-face with what's happening in the world by way of the Internet, by way of interpersonal relationships, and be present with other people whose minds are afflicted, expressing that in word and deed, and not be afflicted? Can our psychological immune system, can our minds be so healthy that we're attending with an open heart, open mind, attending closely, empathetically, but not catching the bug? And that's what this practice is about. The impulses will still arise on occasion. This is not going to make them all go away. But when they do arise, they get no footing. They're like a parasite that just can't get through the skin to be able to actually infect you. They come up, and they're like a parasite looking for a host. But your mind is so balanced, so healthy, so robust in terms of immune system, they come up. And then they just, like a parasite that doesn't find a host, they just dissolve away. And that's what he said, that happens. So I think this is worth any amount of time and effort that we can face anyone, the most belligerent person, the racist, the misogynist, the hateful person, the greedy person, or institutions and so forth, and be totally present with them, with an open heart, attending to them, caring for them, watching over them, trying to heal them if we can, but without having our minds succumb to the same afflictions. So this practice, anybody can practice, right? It didn't say, first you have to believe this, believe that. So there's a lot of emphasis, and I understand it, and in some ways I very much sympathize with it, of uh, secular Buddhism, secular Buddhism. You know? Let's take out the religious elements, but we should be aware that the very notion of religion is nowhere, for, nowhere to be found in, in Buddhism. The word, they don't even have a word for religion. So the notion of taking religion out of Buddhism <laughs> is taking something out of it that you put in. <laughs> they don't have a word for religion, I'm sorry, but they don't have that word. And so Secular Buddhism, I think, is simply an objective fact that the first Secular Buddhist was Buddha. Because he never said once, not in the Canon or anywhere else, well, folks, I've got a lot to teach you, but first of all, do you believe I'm a Buddha? You do believe in reincarnation. Oh, you don't? Out of here. You're not a member of my club. Karma? Yes or no? He never did that. He never said, you have to believe this first, he Simply said, Here's what I can offer you. And then the phrase that I love, and I'll end quite punctually now, but it comes up again and again in the Pali Canon. I so, even though I'm a Tibetan Buddhist, I guess, that's what they call me, but I so I have so much appreciation for the Pali Canon and the Theravada tradition. I lived in Sri Lanka, in Thailand for a couple of years by now. But the phrase that comes up again and again in this very early Buddhism, when the Buddha walked the earth and his disciples were able to receive teachings from him directly, come and see come and see, not come and obey, or come and have faith, or come and, and be orthodox. Come and see for yourself, come and see for yourself. So we've heard some strong claims here, develop and cultivate the coherence, the composure of your mind by way of mindfulness, breathing, and if you really look carefully enough, you develop, you cultivate, come and see, you will see whether it's true that your mind becomes peaceful, it becomes truly well, it becomes blissful, And the mind becomes more and more robust, less and less prone to falling into afflictions that bring only misery to yourself and others. So, thank you Buddha. Yay, secular Buddhism. (laughs) Follow the Buddha first. So enjoy your lunch. I think we have, what, two two full hours? Mm -hmm. Boy, that's a leisurely lunch. So we're kind of calling this a retreat. In the sense that for just for these two days, we're more or less disengaging from the many other activities, demands on our time for two days. And there's a key, and I'll end on this so it's taking about one minute. But contemplatives of the past for centuries, and I'm sure not just Buddhists, have pointed out the powerful fact that if you'd really like to bring about sustainable and profound transformation in your mind, cultivating your mind, including a practice like this, continuity is the key. It's not bursts of enthusiasm. Oh, the last weekend I really got into it, but then I got really distracted. Then I had no time for Dharma. But I'm sure there's going to be a little bit of opening week after next. I'll get to it then. That notion that Dharma is something to put on and off like a raincoat, you know, you'll never get any continuity there. Deep transformation won't take place. So we're about to have two hours, two full hours. How many seconds is that? What? How many times will you breathe in two hours? Will you notice? And so I know for myself, I'll be spending the great majority of the next two hours in silence and practicing. I want to really be very attentive when, I have no idea what she's gonna say, I mean some idea, but I'm, I'm very interested to see what will she share with us. I want to really bring my best to this, and I'll do that if I'm bringing an already a rather balanced mind. So I have the freedom, not to talk much. I'll receive my meal and I'll just go into meditation. But as much as you can, to maintain continuity of your mindfulness. That mindful presence, you'll still breathe. Please do continue breathing for the next two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and every breath is an invitation. It's like a dance partner coming and saying, Would you like to dance? Would you like to dance? Would you like to tend to me or are you too busy with other things? Like rumination. And so the more continuity during the break, I'm totally confident the more benefit you'll derive from the next session. So the more continuity, the more transformation. So enjoy the break and I'll see you in two hours and I'll be sitting over there.